Our reading for this session comes from Matthew 25, 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what we've realized about Kenzie is he, I think, secretly really wants a luscious beard. Do you get that impression? And he has some strange fetish about ficus plants. But we will leave it at that. Um, if you have questions, uh, we have a question time tomorrow, so write it down, especially if it comes up in your discussion group. I'm sure there's a lot of things that uh, have come up and that uh, I haven't had a chance to answer necessarily. Okay, let me show you some pictures of things you wish weren't true, but are true. A jar of peanut butter can legally contain 150 bug fragments and five hairs from a rat. That's all within legal threshold. You are twice as likely to be killed by vending machines than sharks. And more people have died from mosquito bites than all deaths from all wars throughout history. And there are mozzies here. 15% of the air you breathe in an underground train station, like museum station, is made up of human skin. Each day, the average person breathes in one liter of fart. I think Vu might breathe in more. Sorry, Vu, your wife, she's still, who could forget what she said last night? Ask them about it later. The average office is 400 times dirtier than a toilet seat. 20% of office mugs are covered with bacteria from poo. 
And while we're talking about poo, because if you're not going to talk about poo at weekend away winking, you're talking about poo, right? Poo bacteria can travel through up to 10 layers of toilet paper. Think about that next time you wipe and don't wash your hands. And if you keep your toothbrush in your bathroom, it likely has poo bacteria on it. Just because you flush the toilet and somehow it gets to your toothbrush. So, these are some of the things you don't want to be true, but are true. Now, when it comes to hell, I hope you know there is a difference between these two questions. The first question is, do you want to believe in hell? But it's not the same question as, could you believe in hell? Do you you know what I mean? Like, like, I want to believe that everyone goes to heaven. I want to believe that. I I don't want to believe that there may be a place of eternal conscious torment for some or perhaps the majority of people. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to really believe in hell. But, you see, the second question is a different question. Regardless of what I want to believe, how I feel or desire, the second question is asking, could I believe in it? Could I? Is it possible, in spite of how I feel that God, uh, that God might be so holy and just, that we are so sinful and broken, that there could be a hell? Do you, do you see what I mean? Is hell one of those, I don't want it to be true things, but... It is. Because without that distinction between questions one and two, the problem is I will always bring the Bible's teaching about hell or anything I find uncomfortable, I'll bring it to my level of understanding, what I feel could be possible. Do you see what I mean? I may not be able to today help us want to believe in hell, but I want us to turn to the Bible because the Bible is God's word, it's God's authority. And I want us especially to hear from Jesus' own mouth about the question of hell. Is there a hell? And why is there a hell? But that's a really heavy topic. And so I need prayer and I need us to pray together so that God can help me speak and you to understand. So let's pray. Father, I come to this uh, talk feeling the weight of what a topic it is. The terrible topic of hell. We don't want to believe in it. When we think of hell, we know of those we love who right at this moment, if they were to face Jesus, may be going to hell. And it frightens us. We may ourselves be unsure about our eternal status. And that frightens us. So I pray that you'd help me be clear and faithful to your word. And I pray that at the end of the day, we might not leave with fear or fright, but we might leave sober-minded, thinking clearly and seriously about our eternal destinies and those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, the outline is on page 16. Let me start with what Jesus said about hell. We're going to start with bare facts. The New Testament talks a lot about hell, but I want to focus on Jesus' own words as a starting point. And the reason is because a lot of people think, well, the God of the Old Testament might be all fire and brimstone, but Jesus is all about love and mercy. But you need to know that Jesus spoke more about hell directly than any of the other New Testament authors. And Jesus taught three things about hell. They're on your outlines. Now, before I go on to them, you need to know that he didn't teach in a vacuum. He wasn't the first person to talk about hell in these 
three, these three truths about hell. What Jesus said about hell is consistent with what the Jews of his day who believed in the Bible, the Old Testament Bibles, what they believed about hell. Now, Jesus could have denied it. He could have changed it. And there's a lot of Jewish teaching that he was happy to change because they got it wrong. But with these three things, he instead basically affirms what Jews believe. So what are the three things? Number one, hell is a place of punishment after judgment. The word that we uh, mean for hell in the New Testament is the word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is used as a metaphor, but it actually comes from an actual place. The metaphor is derived from an actual place. It's the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, Valley of Hinnom, is actually outside of Jerusalem. Now, it's a famous valley, in a, not so fa- it's an infamous valley, because in two kings and Ezekiel, uh, these, this is where pagan worship happened, and in fact, pagan worship that involved child sacrifices. So it was a place of, of terrible, terrible idolatry um, and murder and the sacrifice of children. That was happening in the Valley of Hinnom. And then in Jeremiah the prophet, um, he used the Valley of Hinnom and what happened there to, to turn it into a metaphor of where God would judge terribly the people who had done these wicked things. So the Valley of Hinnom in Jeremiah 7 is talked about as the Valley of Slaughter. And that's where you get the, the, the metaphor of Gehenna from, the Valley of Hinnom and what it represented. So Gehenna, hell, when it's used in the Bible, is that final place of punishment after the Day of Judgment. The final place of punishment after the Day of Judgment. Now, here it's important to distinguish it from Hades or Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek word, Hades in the New Testament, Sheol in the Old Testament. Sheol and Hades is sometimes translated hell, but it's not the same as Gehenna. In fact, it probably shouldn't be translated as hell. And often it's just translated better as death or the grave. See, Sheol and Hades is not final destination hell. Sheol and Hades is the place where the wicked go to await final judgment. It's the it's not the final destination, it's the waiting room. Now, you need to know that Luke 16, if you did your devotions this morning and used that, Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man actually goes to Hades. So some of the New York translations translates it as he's in hell, but it's not hell, it's Hades. Now, he's in torment in Hades, but it's not the final hell, right? You can ask questions about the torment in the in-between times. It seems like he was tormented, but it's still not Gehenna. That's going to be after Judgment Day, and it's going to be presumably even worse. So final hell happens after judgment. So you see Jesus' words. Um, Have a look with me again at the passage that Diana read. See verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Okay, we're talking about judgment. All the nations will be gathered before Him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And if you skip down all the way to the last verse, then they will go away to eternal punishment, presumably the goats, but the righteous to eternal life, okay? After judgment, there's going to be that separation. And the wicked will go to eternal punishment in Gehenna hell. Now, that's the same uh, message you get from Daniel chapter 12. So you know that this idea comes from the Old Testament, judgment and eternal destinies. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. 
some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay, so hell, number one, is a place of punishment after judgment. That's Gehenna, hell. Secondly, hell is painful. There are many graphic images of the suffering of hell. Again, Jesus' words, because we're focusing on what Jesus said. Mark chapter 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. The word there is Gehenna. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. And Matthew 25, actually just the verse before the passage we looked at, a parable he tells and he says this at the end, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's used a number of times, the idea of darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. So you got there a few images, right? Fire is an image of judgment. Worms that will not die, it's death, but it's decay and corruption, but it goes on forever. Darkness, hopelessness, separation. The pain you see is emotional, there's weeping. The pain is physical, the gnashing of teeth. Hell is painful. Thirdly, Jesus taught that hell is forever. The punishment of hell is not remedial, it's retributive. Okay, big words. Remedial punishment is you're punished so that you might learn from the mistake, so that you might change and have a hope for, hope for change in the future. That's remedial punishment. Hopefully, if your parents are here, you're punishing your children remedially, hoping that they do better. But that's not what hell is. Hell is retributive punishment, comes from the word retribution. That is, you are getting what you deserve. It is a paying for a crime. It's retribution. See, hell is not purgatory. Purgatory is actually not in the Bible. All right, the purgatory is the idea the Roman Catholic Church teaches of a place where uh, Christians, not non-Christians, Christians need to go to, to be purified before heaven. All right, hell is not purgatory. Purgatory is not in the Bible. You don't come back from hell as some sort of purification. The punishment, as Jesus saw it, is eternal. Now, some people dispute this. Uh, some theologians, famous popular writers, uh, believe in what's called annihilationism. Annihilationism is that at some point, um, the wicked will cease to exist in hell. After the punishment is over, they will just be gone annihilated. Unfortunately, that's not what Jesus says. Now, you see there in Matthew 25, 46, the last verse of that passage, he says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Eternal punishment is what paralleled with or contrasted with eternal life. Unless you want to believe that eternal life is somehow limited by time, then eternal punishment seems to also be unlimited. You see what I mean? It also says that uh, in Matthew 25, 41, that this is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Right? The devil is going to hell. In fact, Satan, some people have this image of Satan rules hell, you know, with his pitchfork and his horns and come to my space. No, no. Satan doesn't rule hell. God rules hell. Satan himself will be going to hell. But in Revelation 20, verse 10, we won't look it up, but Revelation 20, verse 10, it says the devil, the devil Satan, will be tormented day and night for eternity. Right, so hell is where the devil and his angels are tormented for eternity. They're not annihilated at some point. And so it stands to 
to reason that that is the same for those who join Satan, according to Jesus in Matthew 25. So that's it. We've got three things. Jesus and the New Testament's teaching on hell. It's punishment after judgment. It's painful. It's forever. Now, it's so uncomfortable to talk about hell like this, isn't it? It's hard to swallow. But remember, there is a difference between do you want to believe it and could you believe it? But it is not enough to leave it here because Jesus doesn't just give us bare facts about hell. See, hell comes as a part of a worldview. It comes as a part of a Bible storyline. See, ultimately, what the Bible says about hell has everything to do with what the Bible says about God and His character. And you don't understand God and His character, you won't understand hell. You won't think it's fair. You won't think it's reasonable. You, don't, you wouldn't want to believe in hell. You wouldn't want to believe that there could be a hell even. So we need to think about God's holiness. And that's what I want to do in point two. It's a bit of a tangent, but an important tangent. And to really help us engage with God's holiness, I'm going to take us to Isaiah chapter 6, which is one of the classic passages where Isaiah sees God in His holiness. So look at it when I, as I read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that's Isaiah, saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In the Old Testament, which is written in the language of Hebrew, instead of using a lot of adjectives, colorful language like what Kenzie likes to use, luscious beard, uh, Hebrew doesn't, wouldn't use luscious beard. It would just repeat the word. So in Genesis, there's a bit where the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell into pits of tar. And to show how deep these pits were, the Hebrew uses the word pit pit. So instead of luscious beard, Hebrew would say beard beard. Okay? Muhammad had a beard beard. Now, very rarely will something be a triple. But you notice here, there's a triple holy. Holy Holy, holy. Now you notice where they came from. Who's saying it? Seraphim. They're a type of angels. But you know what the word seraphim means? Burning ones. So picture not little cute angels, cherubs with like little cute wings with a bow and arrow. Picture Captain Marvel when she goes nuclear. And she's like, you guys seen it? Or you may have seen the preview. And she's like glowing and she's on fire and she's like, that's a seraphim, okay? That's what a seraphim was like. These burning ones in all of their glory. But what are they doing? They, in all their glory, can't even look on the Lord directly. They need to cover their eyes because they can't stand to look at God who is holy, holy, holy. They need to cover their feet in case they insult God because in the ancient world, feet got pretty dirty. Now, these are angels who are neither sinful nor impure, and yet they, and they were burning ones, and they covered their eyes and covered their feet in the presence of God. 
And then in the face of this holiness, Isaiah thinks he's going to die. Holy, holy, holy. That's the picture of God in the Bible. Now, what does holy mean? Now, most people think holy equals pure. So holy means morally perfect, no sin, and pure. Now, holiness does mean purity, but it's a secondary meaning. We'll look at that holiness is purity in a moment, but it's a secondary meaning. At the very heart of it, the word holy means separate. Separate. It means other. It means not like us. So when we say God is holy, it means God is not like us. It's, holiness is God's godness, if you like. And there are three aspects of God's holiness that we need to grapple with when it comes to hell. And the first is that God is holy in His greatness. Remember, holy means not like us, separate, other. God is holy in His greatness. Now, think of, for a moment, think of something you're pretty good at. And some of you are pretty good at, I don't know, maybe it's music or, or sport, or you're pretty successful in your career or your studies. Uh, and you're so good at it that when you're doing it, compared to others, you're better than most. Now, imagine, though, doing that activity that you're good at in the presence of the very best in the field. So there's a basketball court here. Some of you will play basketball this afternoon. Surely someone will be the best out of everyone here. Neville. And, <laughs> and you might be owning it on the court. But then imagine LeBron James walks up and says, okay, let's, um, let's, let's have a bit of one-on-one. All right, or you're on the tennis courts and you're having a hit and you realize that, hey, Dom isn't too bad at tennis. And then Federer comes. And says, hey, I'd like to have a hit with you. Like, wouldn't you be just embarrassed to even try? Like, you know, LeBron walks up to the basketball court. You'd just be like, I'm not even worthy. <laughs> right? Federer or Nadal or Djokovic comes and you'll be like, no, no, you don't want to play with me. I'm embarrassed. I, I can't. Now multiply that by infinity in the presence of God. You're not, we'd just be like, I'm not, what, what, am, I, what am I doing here? See, so think for a moment. If I ask you the question, we as collectively as human beings on earth right now, how much do you think we know collectively as a percentage of all the knowledge that there is to know in the universe? If you had to say a percent of how much we know as a, as a percentage of everything that there is to know in the universe, what percent would you give? It'd be pretty small, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, do we even hit 1% of all the knowledge there is to know in the universe? The universe, not just planet earth. We hardly know anything, right? And yet, everything that there is to know, God knows. That's how great He is. With all our technological advances, do you know how far we can travel? Right? Manned space travel, we haven't gotten past Mars. Unmanned space travel, I think we've sent something kind of Pluto way, but we haven't really even got past our solar system. But do you know that our sun is just one sun amongst 200 billion in our Milky Way galaxy? And our Milky Way galaxy is likely just one galaxy amongst two trillion in the known universe. And we can't even get out of our solar system. And God holds all of it in His hand. With all our creativity and innovation, everything we create, uses what's available in the world, right? I mean, whether it's materials that are available, 
Um, even in music, if you create music or art, it's, you know, music is using notes from instruments. Art, you're using raw materials. Our best innovations, scientific ones, often are copies of what is already in existence, the camera and the eye, you know. Genesis 1 says, the opening words, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and God said, let there be light. God created out of nothing. Like you can't even picture nothing. If I said, close your eyes and picture nothing, you're picturing something. God created out of nothing. That's how creative He is. I mean, I could go on, right? God is holy in His greatness. He is so unlike us. You can't even begin to compare how great God is. So when it comes to hell and anything about God's ways that we find hard to accept, I think we need to remember His words. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, we need to be really careful when we say, God, you can't possibly. See, if God never does anything that you and I find hard to understand or stomach, then maybe our God is just a mirror of ourselves. Because God is great, and He is holy in His greatness. Secondly, God is holy in His justice. I don't know if you've noticed, but since social media, we've actually gotten more outraged and more loud in our outrage at injustice. And that's probably a good thing. But we don't necessarily achieve more justice, do we? I mean, you just follow any thread from any moral issue. People speak loudly, people speak insultingly, but nothing really gets done. And justice is pretty complex. There's always more than one side to the story. A few weeks ago, you, you know about the Christchurch massacre. I mean, just think about that one. We, we know that the main gunman, um, Tarrant, an Australian guy, he's going to face, obviously, a trial and hopefully justice. But how could any government or judge or jury be thoroughly just in this circumstance? I mean, yes, he was responsible. But what about those who supplied guns? and made it easy for him to get automatic weapons? What about the government who makes it so lax for people to be able to get weapons like that? Legally as well. What about social media that fans the flame of extremism and bloodthirstiness? What about these extremist groups that these guys link up with? Some of which are all the way across the world in places like Europe. Like, like do, you do we actually understand how deep and far this one incident goes? And even if we could, how much justice will actually happen? Because, yes, Brendan Tarrant might face justice, but all the people that are indirectly responsible, will they ever come close to be accountable? Or you think about the way that we have pretty much are ruining our planet. How complex is that? Like how, how do you even begin to sort out who's responsible and to what degree? What about exploitation of workers in the third world? Modern slavery, even. Like, aren't I responsible when I buy a cheap T-shirt as well from Big W? Because who's making those T-shirts? And our demand for more technology, more updated stuff, isn't that also feeding that terrible modern slavery 
un- underpaid workers. But then if you stop buying it and boycott it, that's also a problem because all of a sudden they have no means of living. So how do you, how do you begin to think about justice in that arena? Right? And, and the list could go on. Justice is so complicated. And we see so little of justice. The truth is, so much of injustice people will get away with in this life. The vast majority, people will not pay for what they've done. Well, the Bible says God is unlike us. The Bible says that God will bring perfect justice. And not one single thought, word, or act of injustice will escape Him. He is holy in His justice. Look what it says in Psalm 50. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, for He is a God of justice. See, God's justice means that He will judge people fairly. Now, when it comes to eternal destinies, Romans chapter 2, don't look it up, but Romans 2 says that those who have no knowledge of God's laws will be judged differently to those who do know. God will be fair. If you have no knowledge of God, no opportunity to hear about Jesus, you will be judged on a different standard. Even in hell, there will be degrees of punishment. Jesus says that in Matthew 10. Don't look it up now, but he says it in Matthew 10. The more you know, the more you will be responsible. And so, presumably, the heavier your judgment. How exactly that will work, we don't know, but God will be just. Now, some people take Romans 2 and this idea and say, well, that means that some people who don't hear about Jesus and don't know Jesus might be okay on the other side of judgment, since God judges them on a different standard. Well, unfortunately, Romans 2 also talks about how God has given every single human being made in His image an inner moral code. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller does this as a thought experiment. He says to a person, if you take... Now, I'm just going to use Brendan because he's here. So, Brendan, imagine if Brendan, every time he said to someone, you ought, right? So, you ought to do this or you should do this. Every time he says that, he writes that down as a moral code, right? So, uh, you shouldn't steal. Okay, should not steal. Um, You shouldn't lie. Do not lie. Okay, so this is Brendan. Imagine he has no, no knowledge at all of the Bible of Jesus, but every person says a lot of ought statements to your kids, to your friends. Now, every time you say an ought statement, you write that down as a moral code. And then imagine if God judged you by that moral code. Would anyone be guilt-free? Do you see? Even by our own standards, even if a person has no knowledge of God and, and the Bible, just by our own inner standards of morality, we wouldn't cut it. Even when God judges us differently and fairly, we're in trouble. Now, how much more so then, though, those of us who hear, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you live in Australia, you probably have heard of the Bible, you certainly have heard of the Ten Commandments, even secular Aussies have some ideas of God's expectations. What if God were to judge us by the Ten Commandments? I looked through the Ten Commandments in in more detail the other day, and I realized that there is not one commandment I have not broken. Not one. I've broken every single one. Remember, Jesus says that when you hate someone and is angry at them out of that hateful anger, that is murder. If you look at a woman or a man lustfully, that is adultery. Right? God cares about your thinking, not just your doing. And then you go through every single commandment, and you realize, I'm screwed. There is not one of us here who has not broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. And these are people who know. Now, God is holy in His justice. Unlike us, He sees and He knows everything and He will bring everything to light. 
Thirdly, God is holy in his purity. When Isaiah faced God's holiness, remember he cries, Woe is me. I'm doomed. And he says, I'm doomed because he was unclean. He was impure, both he and the people he belonged to. And that's really consistent with every single person who comes into contact with God in the Bible. You stand in God's presence, you think you will die. That's basically how it goes. Right? Same with Moses. Same with, and here, the disciple John, Jesus' disciple, the one he calls his most beloved, his closest disciple. When John sees Jesus in Revelation, he falls down as though dead. Now, when Peter in Luke 5 was faced with just a tiny display of Jesus' display of power, it was a fishing trip, read later, Luke 5. You remember Jesus, uh, P- Peter says to Jesus, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Anytime God shows even just a glimpse of his power, his holiness, his majesty, you just, you can't be in his presence. Because 1 John says, God is light. And then it says, in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. In him there is no darkness. God can no more tolerate sin than a completely sterile environment can tolerate one single bacteria. Right? He can't. He's so pure. And he is wholly unlike us in his purity. And that's why one key idea of judgment in the Bible storyline is the idea of being cut off. Right, sin and impurity must be separated, cut off from God's holiness. Separate equals outside, away, exile. All right, you see that in the garden we talked about this morning. After the man and the woman sin, they are exiled out of the garden. We see that in Israel's camp in the desert, especially when it came to the tabernacle, the portable temple. Those who were unclean had to be outside the camp, exiled, separated. And then later on in the land when the people over hundreds of years kept sinning against God, he exiles them out of the land, spits them out. Punishment as exile. And so therefore, a key image to hell is the idea of separation. Separation from God. And that Jesus calls it the outer darkness. And Gehenna, as I said, was outside the city, the valley outside. And so you get a passage like 2 Thessalonians, and I'm using the ESV because it's a little bit more literal. And it says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence. And the word there is literally the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. Now, this was one of the discussion topics last night. When it says away from God's presence, the word is literally away from God's face. There is no place that God will not be present in because he is omnipresent. All right, so those of you who talked about that and all the groups did, you're right. Hell is not a place where God is absent, literally. The word is not his, you're away from his presence, you're away from God's face. Now, what's a face? See, in the Bible, when God turns his face towards you, it's blessing. Uh, we use this as a blessing. It's from number six, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. The Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. When he turns his face to you, it means blessing. So when he turns his face away from you, it means being cut off from relationship, being cut off from blessing. And that's what 2 Thessalonians is talking about when it comes to the final judgment. So C.S. Lewis, the Narnia author, says, 
if we don't say to God in this life, thy will be done, he will say to us at the end of our lives, thy will be done. Right? If we don't say to God in our lives, I want to do your will, then at the end of our lives, God will give us what we ask for. He'll say, well, you don't want it? Then thy will be done. See, hell is just for those who reject God. Because in the end, it really is God giving us what we ask for. You don't want relationship with me. God says, I will not force relationship with me on you. And so you will spend an eternity cut off from relationship with me. And perhaps that, what, that is what makes hell so horrific. I mean, just think about that. There are not, places, not many places on earth where you would call a living hell, but there are, right? Where there's no rule, no justice, no compassion. Well, hell will be where we will be left to be as bad as we could possibly be with no limits for all eternity. And because there is no goodness apart from God, in hell, when we're cut off from God's relationship, we're cut off from His goodness. And so there's no possibility of repentance in hell because no one will want to repent in hell. Like a lot of people are like, but what if I regret what I do in hell and I want to come back to God? Well, the Bible says when you're in hell, you won't want to repent. And in hell, you're not just punished for the sins you did in this life. You will continue to sin in hell. You will keep cursing God in hell. You will feel the sadness and remorse and regret of the consequences, but not the kind of regret that leads to repentance. You know, the Bible says there are two types of repentance. There's a shallow repentance. I'm really sorry. I feel terrible. I hate the consequences, but you don't want to repent. Versus true repentance, you're turning to God and you want to... Well, hell will be the first kind of remorse. Remorse without ever turning back to God. And so there'll be a continual cycle of sin and punishment cursing God and being cursed forever and ever and ever and God will leave us to be as bad as we could be forever and ever and the community of hell will not be a community of love and care and it's more terrifying than literal fire and worms and darkness, isn't it? But it's what we ask for. So my next point. See, the tragedy of hell is not how terrible it is. That is tragic. The tragedy of hell is this. People will still go there even though God has provided a sure way out. That's the tragedy. No one has to go to hell because God has provided a way out. Now, what's the way out? Well, there is a place where God's holiness and God's, and, and God's holiness and hell meet. There is a place where God's holiness and hell converges. It was when the Son of God stepped into human history and He took on our sin in our place and bore all of God's punishment against our sin on the cross. That is where holiness and hell converge. See, the cross shows us God in His holiness, doesn't it? Remember, God is holy in His greatness. Well, because God is holy in His greatness and His ways are not like our ways, he did the humanly unthinkable. Like we might complain that God's ways is not like ours. But if he did things our way, would he have ever sacrificed his only son on the cross? Think about that. The cross is an unbelievable, unthinkable God thing that no human being would ever... You, 
you come up with a method of salvation, it would not involve sacrificing your own son. But God did that. Because He is holy in His greatness, not like us. The cross shows us that God is holy in His justice. Do you know, God held nothing back in pouring out His anger and justice on Jesus. Even though Jesus Himself never sinned. It's like there was a massive magnifying glass above the cross that could concentrate the white-hot rays of God's anger like a magnifying glass does to the sun. But all of that, in that moment of history, was on Jesus. And because God is holy in His purity on the cross, Jesus, the sin-bearer, remember what He cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was cut off from God. For the first and only time in all eternity, God the Father turned His face away from God the Son, whom He loves, because in His purity He couldn't bear to look on His Son, His Son who bore my sin and yours. God did all of this because God is also holy in His love. See, God's love is so unlike ours. It's so extravagant, it's so costly, it's so undeserved, it's so painful, it's so sacrificial. He is holy in His love, and isn't His holiness wonderful? See, all this means that no one needs to go to hell. This is good news. But in light of what we've talked about, I hope you see it is sobering news. What does it mean to be sober? To be sober means to be alert, to be aware. It's the opposite of being drunk, okay? It means you take things seriously. There's no mucking around with this one, I hope you see. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or if you're not sure, hear this today. Jesus did everything already for you so that you will never, ever have to be afraid of hell. He's done it all. You don't have to earn your way to heaven. You don't have to karma your way out of hell. All right? He's done it all. He's already paid for your sin if you trust in Him. So confess your sins, put it all on Him, trust that He paid it all, turn away from them, let Jesus rule your life, sober up, don't delay. This is real. Turn to Him today. If you are a follower of Jesus, the reality of this good and sobering news, well, should spur us to mission, shouldn't it? I mean, that's the obvious one. Local mission, Global mission, remember CT Stud, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. So 4 p.m., come and learn how to do it better with Kerry and Heidi and his team. But also, I want to show you this passage. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, Francis Chan, in his book, and it's a great book, it's on the bookstore called Erasing Hell. He says, You know what the scariest word there in this passage is? The scariest word is the word many. Many. That's the scariest word. Verse 22 Many will say to me, not everyone who thinks they're okay with Jesus will be okay with Jesus on Judgment Day. Many, unfortunately, will be surprised. Jesus says that hell is where the hypocrites belong. Matthew 24, chapter before the one we read. 
So can I just say this? Don't play at being Christian. Sober up. Don't play at being Christian. Don't be casual with God when hell is at stake. Sober up. In view of God's holiness and His mercy, make sure you're saved. And make sure you're living the saved life. Like, don't, don't mess around with God. Don't mess around with grace. Don't mess around with sin. Don't mess around with your life. Sober up. Do you need to repent? Do you need to come back to Jesus? Do you need a Christian life reboot? Is there something that God is saying to you in your life that you've been ignoring up to this point? Well, this weekend would be a good weekend to deal with that, wouldn't it? Because not only are we dealing with these sobering realities, this is also a good time to invite others to walk with you in this new resolve. Talk to someone about it. Talk to me about it, Marshall, Dom, any of our pastors. Talk to a friend about it. This weekend, sober up, followers of Jesus. Because this is not one to mess around with, is it? Let's get the music team up and let me pray. Father God, we pray that you would indeed help us in light of this sobering reality to take seriously our lives. You've provided a costly but free for us way out. Help us to grab hold of Jesus. Thank you for him. And help us to live transformed lives in light of what you've done for us and in view of your holiness. Amen.